You are listening to the Thundercling Podcast. <laughs> Rippling abs. How are we going to get fucking sponsored by these guys if we can't even get the name right? Did you say you're doing wrestling moves? I'm not bleeding. Jason Kale is walking around on stilts. Fucked up. I like to spice our pee bottle. I'm looking for a drama. Hi, I'm Feedy. I'm Dave. And you're listening to the Thundercling Podcast. We didn't even practice that, dude. No, we that did. was no, we did practice. P H A T, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> that was Pat as hell. How are you doing? How are Good you man. doing right now? I'm touching you. Oh, it's such a strong grip. I can't breathe. Okay, thank you. Um. I'm good, man. You know, I had a thoughtful, thoughtful Memorial Day weekend. It was the Memorial Day weekend. Thundercling hopes everybody had a fantastic three-day break and also a thoughtful three-day break. What does Memorial Day mean to you? Oh, man. I got to be honest. We've been talking about it a little bit, and quite frankly, I don't think I fully appreciated what it kind of means. Yeah. It's a hard, it's a, it's like one of the real holidays. You know what I mean? It's like a meaningful holiday that you need to reflect on Mm -hmm. during. Well, you had, you had much more interesting thoughts on it than I did. I have a thought. Yes. I didn't serve, right? No. You didn't serve. Neither did I. Did anybody in your family serve? My grandparents. Grandparents. My entire family served. They're all in the Navy. I was the first person First, like, in my lineage, not to serve. Because I liked it. smoking a little bit of the doobies back in the day. <laughs> could have been Davy in the Navy, dude. It could have been Davy. Oh, we said that during the last episode. Wait, really? Um, so I think, yeah, if you don't serve, maybe the thing that you should think about, that I think about, is trying to be a person, a citizen, who is worthy of somebody else fighting for like trying to become somebody that a service member would be proud to fight for and proud to defend. That that's pretty deep. I don't know. That's, really that's what I think. Wait, wait. Though. Does descending make me worthy? Yeah. It <laughs> only. It totally depends on how hard. That's, <laughs> how, this, that's how this podcast rolls, God. dude. It's like the climbers mentality. Yeah. Yo, but I sound like V thirteen, man. Happy know. Memorial but Day. But maybe I mean that's the point. I guess it's the freedom to to do that if that's what you want to do right that's what you know that's what the folks in uniform are fighting for (laughs) is our not our freedom to send for god's sake yeah but our freedom to do anything we want to spend our free time however we please and hopefully we are giving reflection unto ourselves to be people worth fighting for is my thought couldn't have said it better myself, Dave. I think you could have, man. Well, let's let's d- jump right into it. That was yeah, a that, that was, was a, deep, that dude. Was, that was oh, Sunday thing just went really deep. This is supposed to be a fun climbing explosion. Well, I hope everybody did have a fun climbing explosion <laughs> over Memorial Day and spent a couple seconds um, thinking about what it means to you, like you did, Feedy. I'm having a moment of silence right now. Okay, um, so on today's show. We have a legend, like a real climbing legend on the Correct. show today. Who Correct. is it? 
It is the one and only Tony Yanero, as well as his his uh, his Dennis Dennis. Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't we didn't prepare for that. Um, his uh, so Tony, if y'all don't know Tony Yanero, well, first of all, he put up the first five thirteen BC correct on the and planet. I gotta say, I gotta say, uh, it's a good thing that Dave's here to talk about this because, quite frankly, I think in the climbing community climbing legends climbing icons are sort of relatively unknown to most uh, new climbers in the way that climbers are coming up nowadays yeah where the magazines don't quite mean as much people are on the internet like surfing beta and stuff like that in videos which is awesome it's great i do too but yeah it's a little bit different you don't yeah i mean what other sport is is there where people don't know like like i know babe ruth i don't even like baseball but i know babe ruth is how dare you dog (laughs) i almost hit the delete button right there um yeah no we don't know i mean this guy would be like uh, a little he'd be like stan musual well there you you go i I don't even know who that is but respect (laughs) um yeah tony first of all he was one of the first hard sport climbers during a time when sport climbing was pretty touchy yes in america yes very touchy the ethics of pushing the sport were hilariously rigid by today's standards yeah wildly antiquated <laughs> wildly antiquated there, and it was all ground up there was no if you fell you hang dog low- is aid yeah man if you're hang dog and you're aid climbing and tony was also one of the first people to start training indoors for roots outdoors yeah and that involved creating holds it involved creating other training methodologies that weren't really done by his peers at the time. Yeah. Building apparatus to like climb on at his house or in, I mean, he was one of the first guys to do that. It was pretty cool to hear. Hold shaping legend too. Yeah. Like guys like Ty Foos and, um, God, Ian Powell all looked up to Tony Yanero as like one of the first great hold shapers on the planet. Yeah, and he also, he's got a couple famous quotes that you'll see mentioned in a bunch of training books. Like, if you cannot, uh, if you can't hold a grip, then there's nothing to endure. Yeah, you don't like, have to worry about endurance yeah. if you don't have the power to climb <laughs> like, it. Damn, son. Yeah, he's such a badass. He, he's such a legend. And now, finally, he owns his own gym. Correct. So they opened a gym. He opened a gym in Prescott, Arizona, mm-hmm. and there might be be another gym in the works possibly Possibly. somewhere else i don't want to say anything about that i'm just gonna keep my voice going a little bit (laughs) anyway yeah Yeah, and shout out to dennis he kind of was just with tony and (laughs) we asked him if he wanted to sit in he did and he had some great things to say (laughs) i don't really know too much about you dennis but thanks for coming on man thanks for coming on i they were here in denver for the climbing wall association uh, say Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. I might have just had a stroke. Uh, the Climbing Wall Association. Very good, Dave. <laughs> meetings. And we got to steal him away for an hour. And he was with one of his employees, Dennis. And we we're like, hey, man, you want to you wanna be on a podcast? He was like, yeah, sure. He's like, I didn't know I was going to be on one. He had some awesome thoughts, though, yeah. about um, kind of like the gym to crag mentality that yeah climbing gyms probably need to step up to a bit more maybe he's yeah yeah he was great i loved him all right well 
I loved. I miss him. By the way, everybody, we had a little contest this past week. T-shirt contest. Two weeks, past two weeks, and we have our winner. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast if you want to find out who won it. There are going to be three winners. Oh, sh- you will find out shortly. Also, can we talk about? Yeah, I guess we'll talk about it later. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> and now it is time for Tony Yanero and Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> All right, enjoy. Um, what I want to hear about is Tony, how you got started in climbing. Because it was in California, right? Yeah. I was a kid. I was like nine. It was like and at a summer camp or something? Yeah. Went to summer camp. And, uh, you know, they had the usual classes. Oh, you can do horsemanship or this or that. And I'm like, what's this climbing? Turned out this uh, one climber, he was named Paul Vance. He was a, just had done one of the early ascents of a rattle rail cap. And, uh, he basically was harangued by his parents to get a job. So he goes, oh, I'll work for the summer camp. I'll do a counselor. And, and they're like, well, what can you do? Uh, I can teach climbing. <laughs> and the, so he went around and explored the canyons and found some spidery little moss-eaten cliff that he could <laughs> take people out to. And so four of us kids signed up for his class, and uh, he took us out there. And he was really a fun guy, showing us how to repel and all I remember is jamming up these little five five cracks with the daddy long's legs pouring oh, out. Of my oh, fantastic. <laughs> well, we were wondering about how you got into climbing because these days you go into any city and there's like five gyms. But back then there was probably wasn't like there's was no, no gym. climbing gyms. No it's such like thing as gyms. There was no such thing as an artificial climbing hold. Yeah. There weren't even cams. Uh, I started climbing on a gold line rope and oh, repelling on uh, static, right? Or, you know, they were really, really bouncing. Like, you tried oh. to repel and you'd bounce up and down. Uh. <laughs> but you'd use a carabiner brake repel. you stack yeah. your carabiners up. And even one of the first things they taught me was a Dolphin Sits repel over the shoulder and under the butt with, yes. a, gold, with a gold line rope. And uh, I climbed El Cap three times with a swami belt and no leg loops. <laughs> Widely known as the most comfortable harness ever made. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, I mean, there was nothing. Really, I mean, there was stuff, but it was just uh, compared to now, there was nothing. This is Stone Ages, pretty much. Well, so you took that class. Were you like immediately hooked? Absolutely. I yeah. got back home, and mom, I'm gonna go back to the the summer camp again. So they sent me there four <laughs> times that year. And oh, every time wow. I took the climbing class, and this guy had there's three of us that did the same things. So the guy was all really excited. We've got these kids that want to do this class, so he talked the summer camp into taking us to field trips to talk eats rock and so he took us out oh, there man. and he started getting doing multi-pitch routes and everything and just loved it as soon as i got back i looked up anybody in, in the la area that would climb joined these little climbing groups that were basically suicide squads and <laughs> we'd go out to joshua tree and yeah just basically survived for a year or two and this is like pre-driver's license so you're yeah i was getting bumming rides with kids you know, there other kids that were shouldn't have been driving and um just getting out there. I was a maniac. Every weekend, I'd call these guys up. Hey, we got to go climbing. And we'd meet on the corner at 3 a.m. and drive out to Suicide Rock, run up the trail, and climb every single climb we could all day long. Wow. Wouldn't yeah. eat because we were too busy. And the goal was to not eat and climb as much as we could so that we could run down the trail to the local ice cream shop and get a shake on the way home. It was so good. <laughs> <laughs> what did your parents think, man? They're just yeah. like 
shooting you out the door at 3 a.m.? My grandfather oh, yeah, you was a, I actually lived with my grandparents. Right. My mom and, and dad split up, and so they shipped me with my grandparents, which was awesome. They were great. But my grandfather had moved out of his house when he was 10 and uh, traveled in Oregon by himself, ended up make, you know, starting a, a sawmill, and he was like this guy. You know, and, uh, <laughs> so he was like, he can get out. He's fine. Oh, Send him oh out. Awesome, he, yeah. he would drive me out. To, then he would drive me out by myself. I'd load up stuff in a backpack. I'd just drive it. He dropped me off at Suicide Rock on the weekend. I'd take a little plastic tube tent and he'd just come and pick me up. That's fantastic. And, you know, it's like child protective services would be at your door today. Oh, if you just let a kid <laughs> live is like, you know what I mean? Yeah. But that's how I was raised too. Yeah. And they just and uh, Yeah. Then when I was 14 or 15, I think it was 15, I, for the summer, I go, I want to go to Yosemite and climb. I had bought all this trad gear, and, and we were learning how to aid climb, and I was aid climbing at Stony Point, putting ropes in sandstone, oh, wow. and doing all this stuff. Decided I was going to go do all cap and do these things. That's so awesome. We went out there with a guy named Randy Levitt. Oh, yeah. Uh, now well-known climber. Uh, we went out there and just started sieging ourselves on walls and having epics and just having a great time. But uh, he dropped me off in Yosemite for five weeks. It was supposed to be a week. Your grandpa? Yeah. He got me. He said, I'll give you, I'll take you up there. Then you'll get come back and get a job. Um, you know, I'll give you the food and money and gas, uh, bus money to get back. So he dropped me off in Yosemite. I got out of the car with my backpack. He handed me 15 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> at, at this point in time, who were, were there people there that were like your inspiration? Or get you psyched on climbing harder? I, I don't know that I was really inspired by anything but rock. I mean, that was I yeah. was reading those old On Ice and Snow and Rock uh, mm-hmm. books, uh, the uh, stuff about Warren Harding and Royal Robbins and all those guys. And mm-hmm. I had the old Steve Roper Yosemite guy yeah. book, the little green thing with <laughs> the black and white pictures. You couldn't tell what they were. And sure. Just, you just go for it. But the zeitgeist of that time was kind of like, I mean, the stone. What years are we talking about? Like seventy three, seventy four, probably seventy four, seventy five. So the Stone Masters are in like ramping up. They're in f- at full power, right? At that time, because like in, if you open Mountain Magazine back then, you'd be reading about like Backer and Kauk. Is that did that influence you at all? Yeah, they weren't really. Yeah, like the first time I saw Backer was at Stony Point. He was this little blonde-haired kid, and uh, he was climbing all this stuff. And I just, all I remember about him in the beginning was, oh, that's this guy named John Backer. He was really hot. Well, he must be. He's got white, ripped, you know, white pants on ripped up PAs. You know, he must be good. He's wearing the uniform. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So that really didn't, that didn't affect you, though. It didn't, like, mold the way you, you thought about climbing or what climbers should be. Um, you know, it's hard to say. I was very uh, tunnel visioned. Yeah. I just had what I wanted to do, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go climb as hard a boulder problem as I could. I'd go and try everything out. I wanted to climb, just climb, 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 climb. Yeah. And I think I was very naive to the social structure of climbing at the time. Why do you think that was? Because you were younger than yeah, everybody I else? Yeah, I just wasn't involved with the click. I wasn't involved. I didn't pay attention to, oh, you shouldn't do that, or you can't do that. Um, Lots of experiences with those guys. Yeah. Uh, interesting experiences with Yeah, with you that. were kind of in the middle of that whole ethic battle. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't care about it, so I was yeah. definitely, definitely uh, 
beat up with it a lot. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> Seems let, like such a let's pain. Let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe start with, um, God, where do we start with the whole, cause you kind of introduced you and Jardine and Randy Levitt, Ray Jardine, uh, Alan Watts, just a bunch of other people yeah. introduced the concept yeah. of like work, what we'd call today red pointing, right? Yeah. Like hang dogging. Yeah. When was the first time you kind of dabbled with like, hold on, don't lower me for a second. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because that's it's kind of a big God, decision. It's, it's hard to say. I mean, yeah. God. Was when? it Grand Illusion? No, we were doing it before that. We were using it on that more. Yeah. I mean, uh, Max Jones and Mark, um, Mark, and Hudon. Mark Hudon were in that period too and they were pushing it really hard yeah and they kind of by publicizing it they were sort of giving people more like oh well these guys are doing it ray jardine was doing it yep a lot you know phoenix yeah and but of course he always got slagged for it because he did it in three three pitches you know hang hanging hanging belays that's a belay that's a pitch so you can stop there and Mm -hmm. you know dead climbing jardine (laughs) yeah (laughs) there was just so much going on about what is an ascent and what is not ascent an ascent back then. I actually got fed up with it and quit climbing for about six years after the Grand really? Illusion because it was so much backstabbing and, and people were just getting so nasty. I said, this isn't fun. I'm going to yeah. do something else. I'm well, how would it, it manifest yourself? So if, if you're like climbing Route X and you fall on your stopper, and you're like, yeah. don't lower me. I want to work this out for a second. Yeah. It, it was not that clear. You didn't stop and work out. For example, one of the first things I can remember getting slagged for was Backer had done this thing called Baby Apes in Joshua Tree. And so I threw a top rope on there and I climbed up uh, almost to the, t- I did it on second try. First try, I climbed up to this pocket and I popped out of it and I was hanging there and I go, God, that, my hand is wet. Is the pocket wet? I reached in there, felt it. Yep, it's wet, lower me down. These guys pop out of the bushes. <laughs> They were spying on me. Just you waiting. hung, you hung. That's, your ascent doesn't count. I'm like, I really don't care. I'm not trying to do this to register an ascent. I'm doing this for me because I'm enjoying this. Yeah. Or, or uh, I did um, Midnight Lightning in Yosemite with a top rope because okay. everyone was falling off and breaking their bodies on it. I'm like, yeah. I'm hey, just gonna, I broke my leg on that. Yeah. And so I'm getting up there and go, you know, I get to the top move and I go, you know what? I'm going to throw a rope on this and do this. And I did it one day and someone goes, have you ever done uh, Midnight Lightning? And I said, yeah, I've top roped it. Oh, that doesn't count. And not weeks later, uh, I think it was Backer fell off it and broke something. And, and then they all drug a big mattress and put it under there. Huh. And I said, well, what's the difference? What's yeah, the protection. ethical difference yeah, between... Dragging yeah. a mattress over there because you broke your foot or whatever, or top i mean doesn't matter i don't even care i you know like i don't care if you count it as a scent i'm not it's, going to register an ascent of midnight lightning that's not my purpose yeah you know but uh there was so much of that going on constant battles that's putting not- up routes and and putting bolts you know you have to do it on lead standing on edges mm-hmm. okay, well i did that route and uh i i put a hook on for balance so i could drill oh then i put a wire stopper over the drill bit so i drill three taps hang on the wire stopper a little bit to rest and drill some more then you're going to more overhanging with a hook and there's a gradual progression of what was acceptable and what was not acceptable um i did this route the needle it's called shirako and i hung on some hooks but did it on lead but yeah. there's a couple of places that hung on the hooks i actually fell 
at one point because the drill bit busted that I had a hero loop on, took a big <laughs> tumbling over backwards, you know, whatever. It was all hand drilled. And uh, this guy named Michael Klinsky was a very vociferous anti-bolt person. I'm going to chop this, I'm going to chop that. Yeah. So after we did the route, he's like, that route has too many bolts on it. And I said, you know what? I don't care. Why don't you do this? I give you permission. Every bolt you pass, you can chop yeah. and leave it that way. And they never even finished the route because <laughs> one of the runouts is so scary on it. You know, it's just kind of like, why do we have to have these kind of discussions in yeah. the first place? Yeah. And I, what do you think made you immune to that, though? The, the reason I ask is because you were kind of in the vanguard that wasn't listening to the chatter. It's like, we want to put, what was your goal? Like, and what made you immune to all of that because bullshit? Because we couldn't climb stuff. It's like, we, this wall needs to be climbed. Yeah. This is an overhanging, beautiful edge route. It's clearly doable, but you can't put pro on it. You can't hang on it to drill. You will either leave it alone, and the argument was, well, you leave it for future generations to solo. It's like, okay, oh so you're going to solo this 130-foot uh, <laughs> 512-plus on-site. Well, if the future generations will be able to do that, it's like, you know what? I think we're going to just do this. Yeah. And so we'd start going up and hanging on hooks, putting these bolts and putting these awesome roots up. Yeah. They turned out amazing. And, you know, for a while there, they'd chop some of them, depending on their mood or whatever. Sure. But it, it just got to be such a rampant war. That I didn't yeah. want to be involved with it because to me, that wasn't the point of climbing. I mean, it seems like it was such a toxic environment. And so you, you took a step away for six years, you said. Right? Yeah. So what brought you back to it? I had been mountain biking racing for years and cross-country ski for racing for years and I got this phone call that said we're going to have the first international climbing competition in Snowbird. Oh, whoa. And they called Ron Kalk and me. Ron hadn't been climbing. I hadn't been climbing. Yeah. And uh, so we said, sure, why not? This sounds fun. We show up and we both got up maybe 25 feet, fell off. <laughs> <laughs> Was this 88, 89? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah and, but we were both so excited about it that we started climbing again. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, back into climbing again, started putting up roots. And, and it was like, this is great. You can actually repel bolts. Yeah. And put a bolt so, in. And, yeah. So by that time, the ethics had changed enough where it wasn't such a like, constant. In selective places. Okay. It was still not pervasive in any, any means. You know, some places were still, we called it back in the dark ages and, and some other places. And there was, I mean, there was a good reason for ethical debate because there was a lot of places where it gets taken got taken far to the other extreme. Yeah. And that's just part of part of the natural progression of things. People are wavering back and forth above mm -hmm. and below the mean and coming to a, a nice place. But that's part of everything. It's progress. Totally. You know, give and take between climbers and It's pretty nice, man. You like uh so you quit for you were got out in like eighty three or something and like yeah. skipped six years of like the worst part of the bolt wars. Yep. Like in Boulder, <laughs> it was really bad, right? In yeah. the Denver metro area. Holy yeah. moly, yeah. they were going at it. Well, I have another question. So we talked about the hangdogging days. You were also like one of the first guys to implement real off the rock training to become stronger. Yes. To do the walls that you really want to do. So I watched. Um, Man, when I started climbing, I remember watching the video on Paisano overhang. <laughs> and, you know, you're sticking, you're, you're wedging your feet in, you're yeah. in a hand stack, wedge your feet in. And when you come <laughs> off, you're like looking for your gear, looking yeah. to place in, and you're 
basically doing a crunch for like yeah. two minutes straight. Uh, yeah. It reminded me of the Wide Boys. If you, got, if you know who those guys are, Tom Randall and Pete Whitaker, who are just mm. progressing crack climbing. Yeah. Um, is that what allowed you to do routes like Paisano Overhang? Yeah. I mean, in fact, that we were just talking about that this morning. Um, he was asking what, about campus boards and where they came from. I said, well, you know, Wolfgang Gulick saw that movie. And in that movie, we have a door, overhanging door, where we screwed on wood edges on the door. And Wolfgang Gulick saw that, went back to Germany and built one on his campus. The Paisano overhang one? In that movie, On the Rocks. Yeah. Yeah. There's, you see a training section, and then there's some, a bit of some, what was the precursor to a campus board in there. And that's where it came from. And we had all kinds of, we called them death machines. <laughs> uh, we'd take pipes and hang two-finger uh, PVC pipes with, with bearings in them. And we'd cut edges into, like, we used to take six-by-six and then just basically cut out edges in them and overhang yeah. them. And you'd climb these things for training and um, you name it. We were trying to figure out ways of reproducing climbing movements because the idea was, you know, following how any kind of muscular training works is you find a movement and you, you rep, do reps at the right resistance and it's going to build strength. Whereas climbing outside... Yeah, you can get strong, but how many times do you find a, a climb with 12 perfect edges in a row for you to do laps on? You just, right. It's hard so. to find that. So if you really want to get better, faster, and more scientifically, you need to make it the way you want it. And then you could go, oh, I've got a climb over there. Like, for example, I wanted to do Scarface. This is years ago, but the same thing. I wanted to do Scarface, and I didn't live there. And I got up on the route, and so Randy and I were there doing this. And so I took a piece of aluminum foil and pushed Whoa. it into the pocket and yeah. made a little form of the little the mono, took it back home, pressed it into some resin, made a pocket that matched the pocket in Scarface, put it in my gym that I built in the garage at home, and I'd traverse around, get pumped, and then do the pocket move. Traverse around, and do the pocket move. Traverse around, and do the pocket move. So then when I went back to do Scarface, that move was literally not an issue at all. It's because I'd been training on it specifically for that. I could do the pocket five times in a row. That's awesome. And, <laughs> but that was specific training for a climb, you know, but you don't have to do it just for a climb. You can do this for a type of climbing. I want right. to train for edges. I want to train for pockets. And um, I'd be, I used to train specifically. Part. I used to be able to do in all of my fingers, except my index finger, a campus, the monos, and these little teeny first digit pockets I had on these overhanging walls, pinkies, fourth finger, third oh. finger, and campus up and down these things just because it was progressive training. You know, gradually a little bit more repeatedly in the right, the right sequence as you would train anything. Yeah. I just trained it for climbing muscles. And so that was kind of the idea is to, yeah, it seemed easy to just do that. But <laughs> it might have been easy, but it's like if somebody says, uh, hey, go fix that car engine. It's super easy. I've been a mechanic for 15 years. Really easy. It's You're like, I don't freaking know how to like it's easy for you. So that was easy for you. But that was like groundbreaking. Were you sharing um, your training methods oh, with absolutely. other people? Were people interested? Like, people give were, it to me. A lot of people were in. Randy Levitt was very interested. He would work out with me. A lot, and he got very strong. Yeah, and um, it was just—it just—it seemed like why not? 
you know, and a lot of it became, was because I was not a climber that lived at the crags. I went to school, I was at home, and I'm not going to go on the weekend. I used to go out to Joshua Tree and try and find partners, and no one wanted to climb. They were all just kind of hanging around. Yeah, yeah, but maybe we'll boulder today or go do some soldering. <laughs> and I'd show up out there like, let's go climbing, let's go climbing. And no one wanted to climb. And that was the mentality that happened to a lot of people that just sat at a crag 24-7 all summer long, oh, all right. winter. They, the motivation wasn't there. So I think by being at home and climbing on the weekends or even every other weekend gave me the motivation to figure out how to, you know, to do something in between and just make all these little training devices. Oh, I'm going to get stronger with this. Oh, I, I want to do that and I want to do this. And um, Another example, uh, back then that kind of led to this, wow, this training stuff works, is um, at Joshua Tree, there's this thing that used to be called Sean's Mantle at one of the campgrounds, this really, really hard mantle that uh, only been done by Sean and, and I think Kevin Powell had done it. Really, really hard mantle. Uh -huh. Went out to Joshua Tree and Kevin Powell brings me, look, check this out, and he shows me this mantle. And he was a really strong climber. He weighed nothing. And um, I grabbed this thing, I'm like, God, oh, that's impossible. <laughs> and so went back home and I'm like looking at the eve of my house we had a dormer that had a perfect replica of this movement on it I was like wow that's just like Sean's mantle so every day after school I'd come and do like reps on this thing up and down up and down do it over and over and ding, 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 ding. and after a few weeks went back to Joshua Tree walked out to Sean's mantle and just boom wow that was easy <laughs> And why? And so I immediately made the connection. Yeah. It's like, obviously, yeah, you works. can climb hard routes if you train for them at home. So that just set it off. It's like, okay, this has got to be taken to the next level. Um, and wow, down. that's just the easiest segue ever. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> like, I mean, is this the time you're like, man, I, need, I should start shaping <laughs> like, holes? No, this was way before that. Way before yeah, that, okay. Yeah, this is when I was, you know, still... In, high school in the early 70s um later on i moved up north after i uh you know had left california i finished school went up there and once i started climbing again uh, along the way a guy named dan goodwin was starting to shape holds and um before that we were trying to figure out how to make artificial holds better than chopping wood Sure. Yeah. And cutting wood. And it's really hard to make something just right out of wood. You, you know, you're, it's just hard to mold it just right. And a friend of mine, Ted Thompson, goes, hey, I have an idea. We can take this polyester resin and throw it down. And, and we just make these piles of polyester resin and mix sands with them and, and fluff them around and try to make, make different shapes. There were, there were, I have a couple of those. Uh, we have a couple on display at the gym, these ancient pockets I had made with just taking these wads of polyester resin made into like dough with with sand and hand formed it was right about that time that the europeans started making all the the really cool they started figuring it out yeah mm -hmm. uh, making holds and it just busted after that but you were who was shaping back then like was uh was was jim karn kind of Jim Karn was then? at it but he was a little bit later Typhus and Ian Powell yeah no this this was before the that all of that Jesus. this was before okay. that but they, it was happening in Europe already I I think the first holds I ever saw I ever saw um, oh, yeah. <laughs> first holds that I ever saw um, actually made where Dan Goodwin made this set of holds these red holds that they used at Snowbird Oh, okay. And I think this was a, but there were more company entrepreneurs that started making some things like that. Um, 
I don't, I was not the first person to start making climbing holds with right. plastic. We were doing more the wood and then the other people had taken off on that. Did you eventually get into the, you got into the industry though, right? Yeah, I yeah mean, it shapes all kinds of holds for different companies. So talk about that. I, I'd love to hear about the early Wild West days of like hold shaping. That's fascinating to me. I mean, because today it's an industry, man. Yeah. Well, my first set of holds were designed specifically for training because I wanted, oh, I want to make something that's shaped better than carving wood. I want to get the exact correct position that I could train on without hurting my fingers. So I made these, I actually took clay, modeling clay, and rubbed um, 120 grit feldspar sand into it to get the perfect texture, which I liked. They've tried to reproduce it lately in factories. You just can't do it. Jeez, that sounds uh, pretty nice. Yeah. But they, <laughs> they, they, they had friction on them. So they didn't feel slick, but they were very smooth. So you had to aggressively hang on. And so I just made all these pockets and, and things like that. And I would custom make them at home and sell them to people because people always wanted them to train on. So I was just making them then. So straight up wanted to get involved yes. with some of these. And so I, we tried to form them for straight, you know, mold them. It didn't really transfer. The texture didn't really transfer. And straight up was, uh, they were in Cali, right? They're California. No, they were from Colorado. Oh, really? Yeah. I remember straight up, barely. Yeah, yeah in Colorado. Okay. And I moved here. I lived here for a year shaping with them and, and doing some other things and just kind of climbing. Okay. Um, but yeah, I shaped with Ian Powell at straight up for quite a while. He was, I thought he was a very impressive, <sighs> progressive hold shaper. He was ahead of his time, too. You know, we would sit there. Yeah, and I think he's still there. For, yeah. He, we, we'd throw stuff back and forth, and, and I just it was great you wow. know, shaping with him. And he must have been 19 when you, 22 maybe? Yeah, everyone. Younger yeah, dude. Yeah, he was a younger dude, but. Yeah, yeah. he's still hard at it, man. Yeah. His, his company's awesome. So, okay, you're making for straight up. And then uh, I just started getting, yeah, it's hard to remember all these things, traveling all over. I made some stuff for, <laughs> in Canada with, with Kenny, Matt, Kenny, uh, not Kenny. Oh, some other guy. I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> Made some stuff in there. Uh, did some stuff for Entreprise. Did some stuff for Stone Age. Um, who else have I done stuff for? I just made a lot of different, different yeah, sets. all over. Yeah. So how did, did you, um, you guys, oh, sorry, Dennis is here also. <laughs> Dennis, what's your last name? Dennis Taylor. Dennis Taylor. Hi, Dennis. Hi, man. <laughs> you guys are here representing Gripstone. Yes, your climbing gym. Um, You designed that. Yeah, it's a brand new gym. It's a smaller gym. It's not as big as the Momentum Gym. Yeah! Say, Feedy, now what gym are we at? We're at Movement. Uh, We're sitting in right now that's massive and awesome. But for our our town, we have a a nice gym, 9,000 square feet of climbing. Pretty much just designed it to be a really functional, compact gym that serves all purposes. And, yeah, it uh, looks great. Yeah, we looked the pictures. We did the virtual tour. tour we did though. take the yeah. virtual yeah. tour. Yeah. It was cool. Was Pretty that cool. your first gym design? No, no, I've designed quite a few. Besides all the garage gyms, indoor gyms, sure. college <laughs> gyms, uh, people gyms, uh, commercial gyms, I designed uh, Powerhouse Rock Gym, which is Desert Rock Sports now, or some. Something in Vegas. Uh, the Spire Climbing Gym up in Bozeman, Montana. Uh, what other gyms have I done? How'd you get into that racket? 
uh, it like just, when did you start? It just evolves. You know, we ended up putting together a bunch of the entrepreneur walls on the cruise ships. Mm. Um, <laughs> ten of those. Nice. And uh, that's more of an assembly thing, working with entrepreneur. Yeah. And uh, built a gym in Phoenix called Climax. Uh, boy. Built Those cruise gym. ships have world-class climbers on them, I hear, too. <laughs> like real fit. Yeah, yeah. Strong. They usually go right from the sushi bar to the climbing wall. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what are your guys' specific positions at the gym? So well, you're the designer. And I, I'm the owner. Owner, owner designer, and um, manager. And Dennis is one of our managers and root setters. Cool. We have another guy that's here in, uh, doing the climbing wall industry tour and classes he's not with us right now yeah. at the moment ryan libby he's our another manager cool. and okay. uh my girl beth oscarson is also a co-owner with me she is holding the fort down in <laughs> arizona while we're here well that's exciting for you i'm sure to, to to put all the skills you've learned you know starting at the beginning of the industry mm -hmm. to this sort of culmination of it all <laughs> yeah well, i think it turned out well it's a small gym but for the space it's very, very functional. I don't think there's anything wasted or that didn't yeah. work in there. It works really well. Um, and I think for the community size we have, it's perfect. Eventually, we may have to expand. Our building has another half uh, that we could. Perfect. We could, it's being leased. It's also taller. Could, it's, yeah. Yeah, that's great. There are a couple of gyms here in Denver that had went on that exact same program, mm -hmm. like the Denver Bouldering Club. They had like two other buildings attached, started small. Started just buying, up. yeah. Just started buying out as they, as the kind of business model worked. Well, as a dude that, as a guy that's been a dude, Jesus <laughs> man, only at, only in Denver, <laughs> as yeah. a dude, um, hey, dudes, man. <laughs> as Give a me guy a pizza. Been, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, as a guy who's had his hands in the mix for a long, long time. So, what do you see in uh, like you were there for the, some innovations like hang dogging, like. Mm -hmm building a home gym, like mm -hmm. getting out lumber and building a finger crack yeah. to like train a crack. Like grand, I don't know if you did that for grand illusions, yes. but oh my God, that's yeah. a beautiful climb too. Yeah. <laughs> Lord almighty. So what do you think about the training ethos in today's world? Like as uh, just the way people are doing it, overtraining too much. What are your thoughts? Oh or, man, we see so much overtraining at our gym. Uh, everywhere that's that's the hard part yeah. is the best thing i can see is that people are wanting to do it and wanting mm -hmm. to train but they don't have enough guidance so sometimes training is becoming a curse yeah uh, i think really if people want to take themselves to the limit in climbing they need to be very mindful of what they're doing and i can't emphasize more getting good advice from people that know what's going on you just can't go and decide i'm going to train and read a book you need guidance because Climbing is very, very uh, hard on a very small group of muscles and tendons. Yeah. That if you want them to get better, I mean, you can train really, really hard and not get injured, but still not get better. You can just become stale. You can train really hard and tweak yourself out and be permanently ruined. Uh, or you can train and get better. And that's the whole purpose of training is to get better. Because if you're not getting better, then why do it? Yeah. Um, it's supposed to be for fun, not for self-flagellation, you know? <laughs> <laughs> some, some people take it there, for sure. Nevertheless, that's what it feels like sometimes. Yeah. Um, I think, I, honestly, I think most dedicated athletes overtrain. I think uh, pull back. My advice to people that are wanting to train is keep climbing. Have a lot of fun climbing, but 
train just enough to where you're getting better. If you're getting better, that's all you can ask. Most people that don't train properly don't get better. And the more they train, they still don't get better. And then they train more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the reaction to not getting better training is to train more. Right. It's better to train smart. Well, how the hell do people learn that? <laughs> Coaching. Probably. Coach. Yeah. <laughs> Grab a coach, right? Yeah. Pay for a coach. I a good coach. Blessed. You yeah. sit next to this man, Tony Nero, and have the opportunity to learn, to train, to build, you know, and yeah. be inspired by the history of yeah. climbing. Yeah. You know? For sure. No, I agree with you 100%. Well, Tony, you've we- trained quite a few people, correct? You've trained like Matt Siegel. Yeah. Worked with um, a bunch of people in Florida. Yeah. And, you know, I, I never like, I've not really officially, okay, I'm your trainer. <laughs> it's just, it hasn't worked that way. It's more like I climb with them for a while and we do some training and uh, dispense a few key thoughts that hopefully are critical and make a difference. And, um, you know, I probably at this point, now that I'm in one place, will start actually training people okay. on a regular yeah. basis. Oh, um, man, that's great. You were kind of responsible for telling Matt to like, dude, you need to get out of Florida. Yeah. Like get out of the, <laughs> get out of the comp scene. And like five years later, he's doing Iron Monkey. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. What'd and you see there? What was happening to him? Like he, I mean, he was like ruling the comp scene there for a while as yeah. a kid. Yeah, I mean, the thing, main thing was, I can't really say that I didn't see anything in. He was uh, a natural athlete, but he was starting to go down some paths that were less productive. And just, I think the environment change was helpful for him. Yeah. In getting in with, he was so much better than everybody there, he didn't have a goal. Yeah. And uh, he just needed to get out here where he had more people to be mentored by and get some guidance and get a different environment sure you can only do so much indoors <laughs> you know indoor i i firmly believe that the way to be the best climber is to do both climbing indoors and outdoors climbing just outdoors you can get good but i don't think you can get as good if you have supplemental training yeah and climbing indoors you miss a huge element if nothing else just the psycho-emotional element of of the the beauty of being outside and the inspiration mm-hmm. of climbing outside but there's something about climbing on rock that develops your technique that you cannot reproduce indoors. So true. Jesus, I totally so agree with that. Well, we talk about it a lot on this podcast, I feel like, but we see people who are in the gym and the stuff they can do in the gym is insane. Like mm-hmm. their, their finger strength is crazy. They're, yeah. they're, they can do one-arm pull-ups for days. Mm-hmm. But then you go outside and they perform so underneath that level. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of this ethereal, like yeah. what is causing that kind of dis... Uh, I don't know, disconnection between the skills. Well, it's not really a disconnection. It's a lack of exposure. Yeah. Yeah. Climbing outside is far more complex and you have to, uh, you have to put together a lot more information uh, to rule your climbing movement. Indoors, there is a much smaller set of movements that you have to do. Mm -hmm. They're, they're good movements, but uh, you can't, you don't just go outside and find this series of weird little edges and find how to contort yourself <laughs> yeah. in there. And, and it, it, the repertoire of movements is so much more outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and different kinds of rock are different. You know, yeah. certain rocks lend themselves to really developing. Like, for example, Joshua Tree. They're the weirdest kind of climbing yeah. at Joshua. You're pressing <laughs> off dihedrals, doing edges. Stem it's gem. like your body's all twisted around. And lots of kinds of rock that have all that 
uh, topography. They're not just flat plain where you're just either crimping on edges or jamming mm. in cracks. You know, um, limestone, if, if you mix, you're climbing too. Yeah. Different kinds of rocks. People that go to one area all the time don't get the exposure that people that travel to other kinds of rock. Mm. You know, Man, it's just I, like a library of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Different languages. Well, I've never, speaking of Joshua Tree, I've never left an area, a climbing area, where my palm skin hurt more than my skin. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. this is weird. But there's a lot of areas, like City of the Rocks is similar to Joshua mm-hmm. Tree. It's got weird Wacos, and you're doing pushing, pressing, and twisting your body around. Yeah. There's actually a local area near us called the Prescott Dells that is, is kind of Joshua Tree-esque that requires a lot of uh, varied movement. Yeah. Uh, lots of sandstones have strange things on them, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Depending on the kind of sandstone. You know, anything that's got a lot of erosion and weird topography on the surface is going to do it. Well, we were talking about... Um, sorry, I'm going to head back a little bit. We were talking. You were talking about gym... Cl- like, getting outside, right? Yeah. So, um, there's been a lot of news recently, uh, specifically by the Access Fund, has, like, published mm-hmm. two pieces in the last week about kind of the ecological impact of climbing on our natural areas. How do you think, as a gym owner, how do you think gyms can help mitigate or take some responsibility for mentoring a gym climber to go out to the crag for the first time with, like, the proper etiquette, both, like, conservational and, like... Mm -hmm. Turn down your boom box, bro. Impact as well. I mean, All kinds of impact. Social impact, ecological impact, uh, the impact of tick marks, whatever. Do you, guys, do you believe that, and I'm sure you guys are going to be talking about this, the CWA, I'm, I know for a fact. What's the responsibility of gyms in that kind of paradigm? Well, a gym is going to be teaching people the same thing any kind of group should be teaching they're people that are going outside. It's, they're sharing an environment with other people. Yeah. And environment is not uh, irreplaceable, irreplaceable. I mean, every environment you go outside is got to be conserved. I mean, the best we can. Obviously, we're going to be climbing on things. We're going to be putting in bolts. Um, responsibility is, is important of impact. If you're going to be just uh, leaving shiny bolt hangers, maybe it'd be a good idea to color them. If you're going to be climbing at the base of crags, what about not leaving your cigarette butts everywhere? What about not leaving your trash? What about um, just like anybody else should be doing anywhere else they go? It's, there's no difference in my mind of a climber and a backpacker mm-hmm. and uh, a uh, person mountain biking or anybody that goes out in the forest. It's, it's a resource that everybody's using, so we have to treat it with respect. Mm. And so I think just simply teaching people respect in any way is that's the hardest part hopefully they grew up learning respect <laughs> i don't think they do though like here's my question like i, I look at areas with um social trails mm-hmm. it's a huge problem like did you read the access fund piece I dennis you mm-hmm. nod in your head um they show a pic- <laughs> they show a picture of the hulk in the happy boulders in bishop from 1995 mm-hmm. and there's just like it's green and right. there's beautiful shrubbery mm-hmm. everywhere and today it's like it's a, a wasteland. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, your the guys are dead. Just the light just went out. Um, I just, I don't think people understand 
uh, young climbers or people getting it, who were raised in the gym or were going out now. I don't. I don't think anybody is there to teach them that it's like that don't use social trails, scrub your ticks, don't throw your crash pad on a sagebrush. Mm-hmm. Right. So my question is, who the hell is is supposed to do that? Other, I mean, I know as climbers we should all be chatting with people, but well, do gyms have a bigger say in that? What do you think? I Dennis? mean, my perspective on that is education. It all comes back to educating, right? I, as a, I was a Boy Scout. I was taught LNT, right? Leave no trace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's an outside practice principle to educate so that we can keep our pristine wildlife areas, right? After seeing so much impact around. And um, I think that it, it all just comes back to educating. And then now with the boom of indoor rock climbing, you know, it's simple to go climbing. You can just, okay, grab your gear, go into room, and you get to climb. And now people see that it's almost that simple to do it outside as, as Tony yeah. and all of those guys were doing it in Yosemite and Joshua Tree and, you know, going to all these places and Takits, they were educated by mentors, people who were like, hey, I'm doing this cool thing. Check it out. Go rock climbing. Here's gear. Here's a piton. Oh, now we've got stoppers. Oh, use stoppers now, right? We're let, putting less impact on the rock, less impact on the pathways. But what a, as a gym, as now being a gym entity and we're trying to like, bridge the gap between indoor and outdoor, creating a somewhat of a guide mentorship program. So that's like, hey, let's get the youth outside, right? Take them off their cell phones. Everybody's got this phone. They're taking videos. They're taking pictures. Oh, what'd you say? I was just looking at my <laughs> yeah, phone. Yeah, you were looking. See, see, right? Like, and you walk around, everybody's on their phone, right? Oh, let's go get our Instagram pic. I'm outside. I'm on a social trail, right? But needless to say, they're standing on, you know, microbiotic soil or what is that crypto cryptobiotic soil right they don't even know what that is right so environmental education i went to prescott college i took a course in environmental education so i could better understand where i want to be because i want to be in nature i want to explore i want to climb you know i want to better myself as a human being i don't want to just be plugged in on the phone on the internet like i think that comes also to mentality of like individuals Right? People so want to be outside, people want to be inside. I think what you're saying, and I agree, <clears throat> is that the impetus might not only fall on the, the gyms themselves, but like us. Right, humans. Like step out and start talking to people. I don't know, it's just hard. It, it's just like it's anything. A, when you have more people, you have more impact. The fact is yes. now climbing in the past, when I started climbing, there were so few people. Yes, there was impact, but it wasn't as visible. Uh, right. And in, in like Dennis was saying, Boy Scouts, yes, I was taught Boy Scout ethics. A lot more people going out to the gyms, we're going to get more and more people that weren't taught Boy Scout ethics, that are just coming straight from the city, running out to the crags, and the, the bottom line is more people equals more impact. Yes. So which just means there has to be an increased level of conscious and awareness uh, imparted on these people because there are more of us. And we want people to climb. We want people to go outside, but... There are not, we can keep building more gyms. We can't be, keep building more crags. Yes, exactly. Mm. That's what's scary. I, this saying, uh, <clears throat> loving our sport to death <laughs> right. is yeah. like bouncing around in my head right now. And how do, how do we continue loving our sport and growing our sport and introducing new people that I, my friends, I want them to know what this feels like to be a climber, but how do we not like bludgeon yeah our passion to death in the process. And there will be, if, if we don't do something, there will be controls that are coming from without the climbing society. For example, 
what does Yosemite Valley look like now? Oh. Just the people, not climbing, just the people. How many people will go there? It's, how about if you want to hike to the top of Half Dome on the, on the cables? Yeah. You used to be able to go out there, hey, let's go to Yosemite this weekend. Let's go hike the Half Dome Trail. You can't do it anymore. Why? It's regulated. There's too many people. Now you have to go on in lottery a system. lottery yeah. system, and they don't even let you know until the night before that you're right. going to be able to do this, so you can't travel to Yosemite that night when you find out. I mean, it's so many people, it's become regulated. Do you and think that's a good thing, though? That's going to happen if we don't uh, cause those outer people to not notice that we're destroying something. If we are not going to self-regulate, we will get regulated eventually. Yeah. So we need to think ahead of the game and think, look, this is what happens to places where people go ride motorcycles, camping areas, Yellowstone with all the campers. This is going to happen to climbing if we don't self-regulate before the government gets involved or other groups that have to regulate because we're not respecting our climbing areas ourselves. I can so. hear Edward Abbey rolling yeah. in his grave right <laughs> now, dude. That's where my head's at. Um, well, Waco, though, was regulated and has been regulated since 98 or whenever. That is kind of a success story. Mm. Like, they've done it really well. Their vegetation is growing back. There aren't many social trails. The question is, like, how do, you regu- how do you regulate every crag, or does every crag need it? I don't know. I don't think it's a regulating per crag. I think, like Dennis was saying, it's regulating per the climbing community. Yeah. We have to start in just teaching those things from the gyms, from sporting goods stores, from right. whoever is exposed to climbers. They need, the climbers need to learn right off the bat how to behave um, when they go out. They don't leave their trash around. They don't, you know, park on, drive their car to park over the sagebrush that's not in the parking area. Simple things that don't enter their mind because they've never been told. We just need to somehow start passing the word right and look at you guys look what we're doing right now we're talking we're communicating these messages on a podcast or that you know of a media some sort of media right we got news we got magazines we got climbing magazines we got rock and ice we got posters nowadays we got social media you got instagram you got facebook tumblr twitter all these things that could be used to the advantage to teach you know um and i think it's beautiful that you guys are hosting and sharing this knowledge and putting it out there so that granted Somebody's got to go listen to it. Yeah, we got to put a picture of a naked Kim Kardashian just right. to get people like, to come and listen. Yeah, you know, like conservation stuff. You know, yeah, that's but, true. But it's still, nonetheless, education, right? If I learned when I was five years old to not, you know, shit on the rocks, and, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, you know, you got to be taught something, yeah. right? And if you're never taught, then you don't know, right? Maybe people need to be scared with a couple of <laughs> things. Like, look, this is what happened. To this place, when people didn't regulate themselves, they got regulated. Maybe we need to think ahead a little bit. Right. I agree. Look you at know. strip mining, <laughs> plaster mining, all those things that have destroyed beautiful areas. Is, so you guys are down by, I mean, not super close, but by Queen Creek, right? Yeah. Is that still accessible to climbing? Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought that was going to be quarried like a long time ago. Whatever. I, I don't know the full details on it, but I've heard good things about people going out there. I think there are areas that... Got that messed a, up. A mining company, mm-hmm. maybe a mining in interest I think bought. Got, I think they got shut down because of malpractice. Like, oh. They were destroying the area, and somebody came in like, you can't be doing this anymore. Like, this is a beautiful area. Like, no, cut that out. Yeah, that's Get great. Out. Well, do you, um, do you guys offer like an educational video that everybody needs? To, and this is for you too, Feedy. Does, I, don't, I don't think movement does it either. 
No. Do any gyms, if like you become a member, are you going to come in and you say, you got to sit down for 10 minutes? Eight. Eight. You guys have one. <laughs> well, it's, it's strictly on our gym. It's our yeah. safety orientation video. Right? But do you have, um, do you offer one for climbers that are going to go outside, which is obviously the Not next at, step? Right. Not as of, as of right now. We that actually have cool. it in the works. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. We have it in the works right now. We're going to start offering a gym to the outdoors transitional class for people to come into the gym and learn about what they're going to be needing to learn for out the outdoors. Then we're going to offer another uh, almost a guiding session where we're going to now, now that you've learned this, we're going to take you outside and teach you how to survive outside and not take all of your supposed knowledge in the gym and kill yourself with it. That's fantastic. Uh, and that would be a perfect opportunity to show them a film like that of how to respect the outdoors. Once we go out, here's how you behave. That's a great idea. Yeah, I just, <laughs> I, I'm just so concerned about all this. That, um, it really behooves our listeners, and if anybody at this table hasn't read that Access Fund article, it's kind of like reading a horror story, <laughs> but it also points to some, um, I don't know if it's the red or the new, mm-hmm. but people are building belay-like ledges instead of standing on an eroded, standing yep. on eroded ground, just building it out of lumber so you like walk up and you stand on this like wooden platform. A little bit there's, of an eyesore. Yeah, but there's also pros and cons to that. I can see in other areas this has been done to prevent actual erosion. Yeah. And so the question is, are we creating an eyesore, creating a problem, or are we solving another problem? Mm-hmm. And that probably might have to be taken at a case-by-case basis, um, depending on the crag, depending on the locals. Totally, totally. Uh, I mean, you might be able to prevent actual damage, which, which could cause trails to landslide and re- expose roots of trees. Yep. I mean, it probably... It has to be looked at individually, but... Uh, yeah, absolutely. Another thing is uh, climbing when it's wet. I don't know yeah. if you guys have an issue with that in Arizona, but I mean... Sedona. Sandstone yeah. rock. It's sandstone rock. It is right. definitely preached about don't go climbing, you know, when it, after a wet rain because you're going to damage the rock. You know, I still live in potential. Vegas. Oh, right. Jesus. Red Rock's a and gigantic problem. There's a very... But there's a, a large sector of people. I had somebody just come back from Vegas after the rains and said, I was trying to find somebody to climb with and nobody would climb. And I said, was it raining? Yes. And they said, oh. So apparently there's still uh, at least a reasonable amount of people that are aware that they should keep off that crag when it's wet because he couldn't find a climbing partner at a typically crowded area. <laughs> so, Fantastic. Yeah. So well, at least there's some light at that tunnel. That's <laughs> good. Um, well, do you have any, anything happy then? <laughs> well, I actually want to ask you, Tony, you're often referred to as like the father of sport climbing. Oh, yeah. How does that make you feel when people, have, has anyone come up to you and been like, wow, like I love the history? They say that all the time, but I don't really see how you can isolate one person yeah. and call you the father of something when there's a whole society that was developing climbing at that time. I would feel a little bit embarrassed to take credit it's not really the credit is not due there there's a large number of climbers that were all contributing to the evolution of climbing at Mm -hmm. the time i was just one of them and um there's a lot of fantastic people out there doing the same thing humble so that's my word to say (laughs) the the father is humble (laughs) i started working for this man i knew who he was by name by photo by guidebook yeah and Introduced, talked to him, didn't, didn't know who exactly he was, started working for him months later. 
the light bulb goes off. I'm like, shit, I'm working for <laughs> Tony <laughs> Nero. Nero. Like, man, that's like grand I'm evolution. standing with an, a legend right now yeah. to this sport. And Fossil. I had no idea. <laughs> fossil. Uh, He's a fossil oil. legend, though. So. <laughs> hey, I mean, it's it's cool that we have you know you here, who's a pioneer mm. of the sport. You know, a lot of sports started so long ago that the people who started it are aren't able to talk about it. Right? Mm-hmm. They're gone. So it's yeah, it's awesome to be able to exp- or hear the history firsthand. Because yeah. um, we're all, we all love climbing. So right. <laughs> yeah, I got a question about that too. You you seem like a guy who is way more interested in like difficulty in gymnastics movement other than like man i want this to be <laughs> risky i want it to be hot. i mean not saying you weren't a bold climber because you <laughs> obviously were that's not I what i'm saying did but my you, share of crazy things <laughs> but you seem way more interested in like the gymnastic movement the mm-hmm. like pushing yourself it was that it's true it, okay it's true because i did not want to stop climbing right and if you do something risky you will stop climbing so yeah. did you find that you were at uh, loggerheads with a lot of people at that time who were oh, real? absolutely. I'd love to hear more about Abs- that. Oh, absolutely. Um, again, I used to go out to Joshua Tree with um, uh, the group. I won't say who they are, but the group of soloists. They would <laughs> love to solo things. And I was just like, why are you guys doing this? Um, <laughs> you're going out and climbing. You can climb 512. So you're going out and soloing 510s and periodically falling off and breaking your legs and things like that. Um, why? Because it's pure. It's like, well, what's so pure about it? You know, pure about I mean, dying. What, you know, I want to climb. I want to climb something challenging, and I'm not going to climb anything challenging as hard as I want to push me physically if I can't fall. Yeah. When you're soloing, you can't fall. Yeah. You don't get to fall. So how can you try something at your limit if you can't fall? And so to me, it became very unattractive. And I've watched these people like, oh, so and so is climbing. Solo that, okay, well, that person can climb 512. You can climb 511. He just soloed a 511. That's easy for him. You're going to go solo at 511. That's at your limit. You are asking for it. Yeah, seriously. Jesus. And they do. They, they, they were starting to break their legs and fall left and right. And uh, I also don't condone publicly professing that you're doing something risky because kids don't know the difference. Right. Kids see this. I, our gym, I've had so many people already come in, little kids. Hey, man, I want to climb that without a rope. I want to free solo that. Uh, I saw free solo Alex last Hall? week, and I want to solo. And they're saying, do you guys climb without ropes? No, we climb with ropes. Oh, really? That's oh, boring. whatever. You guys are like wimps. It's kind of. <laughs> that is such a good point, the, the unexpected consequences <laughs> of like glorifying free soloing are that like so many people are just exposing themselves to risk that they don't understand think somebody just fell off the second flat iron like a month or two ago because they were just like yeah free solo (laughs) they don't know like what it actually yeah the consequences yeah the consequence i've put myself in some really scary positions going for it too much i've soloed some things and i've done it a few times where i got to the point and went you know this is just this is not exciting this is not bold this is stupid yeah and like why would i do this again Am I, am I not able to learn? Like, I, okay, I'm going to learn from this. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do something different and enjoy myself. And that's where I went with it. And so, yes, I was more interested in the uh, difficulty because to me, there's only a limit to how bold you can get before you've gotten too bold. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me think of one of your contemporaries who 
is the one soloist that I've always admired, and that was Peter Croft, mm-hmm. who always knew where the break was. Yeah. Every time he soloed, he's just like, I better be able to down climb this because if mm-hmm. I don't feel good. But a lot of your contemporaries were out there. Are not here anymore. Well, that's <laughs> true as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, very few of them yeah. passed soloing, but. Yeah. I've been in places where I wasn't soloing that if I would have been soloing, I wouldn't be here anymore. Yeah. Climbing on Dome Rock one time. I was climbing up. Uh, I was fairly run out. All of a sudden, rocks start pouring off the top. Tourists are up there throwing rocks. Oh. Okay. How about the incident, I'm not going to mention names, of the person who was soloing in Colorado, dove for a bucket on a route he'd solo every morning uh, for easy. Bucket, got filled with water the night before and froze. Little quick little pop from his bucket, hits the ice, gone. Okay, Climbing, things happen. I mean, if you don't have a rope, even things even happen with a rope. Yeah. I mean, you still are playing percentages. They're good percentages, but... Talk about cranking up the odds. When you start soloing things, holds break, things fall on you, holds have dead birds in them. Then when you dine over a hold, they've got lizard poop grease on it. You never know. Something to happen. Shoes delaminate. Skin chunks of... I've fallen because I've had a callus rip off my finger on a nice sharp hold. I can't tell you how many times I've had things happen that if I was soloing, I wouldn't be here. Yeah. I The first time I went to Yosemite... Our first day, we got on Nutcracker, and I was like, oh, this looks so casual. And I ran it up past the, like, flaring section on the first pitch, and uh, I looked down at my girlfriend. I was like, I'm not going to put in a piece. This is oh so God. much fun. And she's like, put in a fucking piece or we're breaking up. Right. <laughs> so I was like, Jesus. <laughs> so I, put, I stuck in a cam, made two more moves, and slipped. Yeah. On five seven mm-hmm. beautiful huge layback mm-hmm. taught me a lesson right there that i'm never ever ever gonna forget <sighs> just place the gear and don't yeah, solo gotta, <laughs> yeah. gotta take those small lessons man yeah, I, m- I moved to prescott arizona to learn how to rock climb basically that was my desire i wanted yeah. to learn how to rock i wanted to be outside and i show up to morning uh there's a wall in the dells sean's wall a gentleman name of sean was complacent climbing and uh, didn't protect himself at the top, said take, took, went off the rock, landed, cracked his skull open in front of 13 other college-aged kids. Oh, no. And it scarred them all. And they all learned lessons, and most of them stopped climbing. But the unfortunate factor is that's a lesson from many people to come is here's the story of Sean's wall. Look. Don't be complacent. Protect yourself. Yeah, complacency. Pay attention. Pay, complacency kills. Yeah. And, you know, if you want to have a longevity life, you know, here, Tony Anira, like, you know, not to age him, but he's a dinosaur, 58 years old, still crushing <laughs> 58? I can't even believe you walked I in this I had to say gym. that. I had to say that because <laughs> this man crushes 5'11s and still stands here, you know, and still trains harder than I do at 24 years old. And, you know... I want to, that's what I want from the rest of yeah. my life. Yeah. You know, I don't want to be splat at the bottom of a rock, like, you know, like doing something that I love, but sure. ending your own life, doing the thing that you love so much. The last guy we talked to is an author and he kind of stepped away from climbing for a couple of years. And he said, yeah, I, just, I was so scared all the time. And I thought he was going to say, you know, I want to live my life for the <laughs> next 40 years. But he's like, I don't, I don't do that hard stuff anymore. Cause for the next 40 years, you know, I want to eat burritos. <laughs> Just like same sort of thing now. Anyway, um, I think our hard hour is up, gents. Alrighty. 
It is indeed. Um, Tony, thanks so much, man. I know this was kind of like we're squeezing you in. And Dennis. <laughs> yeah, Dennis. Thanks for sitting Surprise visit. <laughs> Hello. You're on a podcast, we, Dennis. How long cool. are you guys in town for for the CWA? We'll be here until we're going to try actually get outside on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Nice. The weather's good, and then we're going to head back on Sunday. Cool. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, we appreciate it, gents. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks for sitting down with us. Our yeah. pleasure. It's a pleasure to talk to you guys. Cool. Nice to meet you guys. What's the title of this again? Oh, we're definitely going to cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> I'd probably lean left because social injustice don't give my respect now. Some say my heart, it's bleeding out of my chest. So, as soon as Dave touched that little red button. I shouldn't have done it. You shouldn't have done I it. I always hit stop record too early. Tony immediately flipped the switch and was like oh by the way check out these dope old school legendary mythological stories i have that i didn't bring up and let me tell them to you right now that's the thing about tony he's so humble and like professional and he's kind of quiet he's not a he doesn't exude braggadocio at all yeah and as soon as we freaking hit that button he's like yo i got a john long story to tell (laughs) you guys like, Tell that story a little bit out, a little bit of it. Well, he was telling the story of when he was a 14-year-old kid hanging out in a Joshua crusher, Tree too. Crusher, yeah. And they were dicking around and bolting roots and they had just bolted some heinous crimp root apparently. And as they're just messing around on it, a car pulls up and who do you know pops out? It's John Long and his Stone Master and his cronies. Stone Master cronies, and you know these are people that Tony looked up looked up to. Yeah, when he was starting to climb, and they are <laughs> messing around on this route that Tony bolted, and they're like, just bolted, too. just bolted. And they're like, this is impossible. You, there's no way anybody climbed this. And Tony was like, oh, I did, I did, I climbed it. And apparently John Long just grabbed like the rope after he had been flailing on it, and he just shoved it at Tony. And he was like, You, you do climb it, it. <laughs> you climb it. <laughs> And, and he Tony did. did. Yeah. He fired it right off. And I, Tony was like, and I lowered down. And John Long, and I don't know who was with him, Tobin Sorensen, somebody like that. Yeah. And they all just like, they're scrunched up their faces and walked away. And he yeah. told like three stories yeah. in a row like that. So Yeah, Dave was crushed afterwards. He's like, what have I done? That's like the goal of this podcast is to give, to offer these inside like stories that nobody ever hears. And my Fucking stupid finger. Stupid, Hit that stupid, stupid button. Your fucking finger. We missed the O. <laughs> Why are you laughing? I just love it. It's on point. Anyway, um, so we thank Tony Yanero and, of course, Dennis. Dennis. <laughs> Dennis was great. Yeah, Dennis was awesome. He came out of nowhere, man, yeah. with some insightful. I was uh, like, yo, Dennis, chill, dude. You're doing too good on this podcast, bro. Yeah, stop making us look God. bad, Denny. Like, next thing I know, like, I'm going to walk in the studio and who's going to be sitting in this exact spot? It's going to be Dennis. And then you're going to be like, I wanted to talk to you before. (laughs) I didn't know you were actually, I didn't even schedule this. How'd you find any way this is And then I'm going to storm out, get in my car, cry, drive Uh home, go to sleep, repeat that cycle for at least two months. Yeah. Well... Keep coming back here and cry. Okay. <laughs> Just keep coming back to my house. Yeah. Hey, can I come on again? Please. No, uh, Dennis has it under control, though. I just I want to talk into a microphone. Oh, yeah. Hey, we have a contest oh, yeah, to right. announce. So we had the t-shirt contest. If you guys have been listening, and we're going to pick three winners right now. Yeah, it's really cool. Dave wrote the names of all the con- entrants, all six of them, onto pieces of paper. You, you, don't, you don't have to say we... <laughs> There's like nobody knows if we lie. And we he, can say like there were sixty people. 
Yeah, 60 people, guys. 60 divided, divided by, by 10. 10. <laughs> and he's put the pieces of paper into his bathtub, which he's filled with water. So I'm going to be bobbing with my mouth to get these it's out. It's vodka. All right. It's vodka. <laughs> Number one. Bobbing for the first name. Feedy is in the tub. Ooh. He just fucking farted in my bathtub, bro. Sorry, bro. And our winner is... Whitney. Whitney. Oh, Christ. Here goes my dog again howling. Every episode. Anyway, Whitney, you won a Thundercling t-shirt. Congratulations. And a sticker. And 10% of the proceeds of that t-shirt go directly to the access fund. So that means you're now a philanthropist yeah oh yeah big philanthropist whitney congratulations wow Wow. Wow. make sure to put that on your resume all right who's next next up our winner is luke who said that our intros were masturbatory i mean that's honestly true because it's the most insightful thing we've heard in a while (laughs) (laughs) they're totally we appreciate your honesty that's we tried to cut it short this time it was not 20 minutes long this time Dave was hurt I was hurt, but they are masturbatory. So thank you, Luke. And our final winner is Feedy. Get your face in that bathtub again. Okay. It's so cold. He's dipped in. He's dipped in. Lauren. Lauren is the winner. So we got Lauren. We got Luke. We got Whitney. Thank you so much for doing a rating and review. We really appreciate it. Really helps out the podcast. And you guys, I will hand deliver. Correct. Dave is getting in his car. A t-shirt. And a sticker to you. Yeah, if you live more than 50 miles out of town, uh, you're going to probably have to have some snacks ready because Dave gets really cranky when he doesn't have a snack. I'm probably going to ask for two snackies. gas money as well. <laughs> hey, uh, Listen, I, this really put me I out. I actually can't I'm, drive home. I don't have a I job. Don't, we don't, don't get paid for Thunderclaim, <laughs> but it's all I do. If you guys can just throw me a couple bucks for throw the gas. A, throw him a bone. Yeah, just help out a guy. Help yeah. out the bald guy. <laughs> You know, he used all his money to get you those t-shirts. <laughs> That's right, man. That was my last cent. Anyway, we really appreciate it, guys. Um, I also hope you like the Tony Yanero interview. We'll have yeah. another ooh, just piping hot and fresh pancake coming out of it. Wait, the... and don't forget to oh. shout out Dennis. Wait, oh yeah, Den- Dennis? I think we shouted okay, out Dennis. Sorry, Dennis. I'm just so psyched on him. I yeah, know, Dennis, the dark horse. You did a great job. And on shout the spot out and too. A thank you to Movement for letting us record in the Baker location. And yes. Keenan Wagner for getting us in touch with Keenan, and or Ke- in touch w- with himself. <laughs> Keenan, thank Kenan, you thank for you. introducing yourself, <laughs> <laughs> or getting us in touch with Tony Adiro. Yes, that they one. were here for the Climbing Wall Association yearly meeting, and we got to steal them away for one hour. So we were super psyched. Yeah, and now we're super strong. We're just as strong as Tony Adiro, which is I didn't expect I, that. My arms. Have become so they're girthy, fucking huge, and they're tan too, they're tan. like nineteen seventy seven yeah. Yanero tan. Like I just ran some laps on like the hardest route in the the valley, and I'm just pumped out of my mind. Yeah, it's pretty ah. sexy stuff, man. I gotta tell you, thanks. In a platonic way, it doesn't have to be that way. <laughs> anyway, uh, once again, we hope you guys had a great Memorial Day, and uh, thanks for listening. Oh, if you want to get a hold of us, Thundercling Podcast at, at gmail dot com. And, and on Instagram, we're there. Not the Facebook. Thundercling. The Thundercling on Instagram. <laughs> not Facebook, though. Yeah, and not Thundercling because that's a guy who lives in Yosemite. I'm or Waco. Or Waco. I'm I don't co- know where he is. Some guide. Yeah. 
We're gonna find that. We're gonna find dude. it. He's actually gonna be our next guest. <laughs> We're ambushing uh, him. It's on the Thunder Gleam podcast with Thunder Gleam. <laughs> this is gonna be you still fucking told meta. Thunder Gleam. Yes. What? Uh, we'll get to that one day. Fuck. Okay, guys. All right. Let's Thanks do for it. listening. Yeah. We love you. We love you and good, and good night. I ever do that or one. good day. Good day. Bye. Bye. People yelling, take, take you motherfucker before I die. So we hiked on the trail right down to the boulder by the water. It was pretty chilly, but the holes were crisp. It was pretty nice, it was pretty fun. After the session, we walked back on the trail. A hundred and twenty feet above the water You wouldn't want to fall You're gonna die My buddy Todd He was carrying a crash pad on his head I turned around And the first thing I saw Was that crash pad tumbling 150 feet into the aqua Sometimes you go to a crag and you say to your friends, this place is a shit show. There's that barking dog. The people yelling take. So annoying. But sometimes you become a part of that shit show. You are an in- integral cog of all of the shit, all of the madness that goes on at climbing crags. So it's, a, it's an important thing to think about when you're out at the crag and you say, this is, why are all these people here? One thing you can remember is that you're there too and you're a part of the shit show no matter, no matter, no matter, no matter what. What you do? Hey, he the, the crash pad landed in an eddy, and he jumped. He dived. He dove into the water, and he got it. And he was wet and cold the rest of the day. It was real shit show. The motherfucking moral of the story, dogs, is that we're all part of the shit show. We're all part of the shit show. We're all part of the shit show. We're part of the shit show with us. We're putting on the crag. All of us hate the rock. No matter how good we think we are, we're all at fault. It's your fault. It's your fucking fault. It's your fault, Todd. 
Once you drop the crash pad, Todd! But I hope you have a nice time the next time you climb at the crag.